I invite you to turn in a Bible to Psalm 111 as we have been thinking in prayer before the Lord about mortality and life and death. I'm reminded of an encouragement to pastors and preachers to be blood earnest in preaching. What we're about right now is not some flippant thing. It's not some trivial thing. It is of ultimate significance. And so we want to hear from God during this time. And God has given us his word so that we might hear what he has to say to us. And I invite you now to hear God's word from Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. If you are here today and you are already perfected, if you are already completely satisfied with your life and you don't struggle with anything, you don't have a need for your life to be any different than it already is, then I don't have anything for you today. However, if you're like the rest of us and you desire to have your life transformed, you are desperate for your life to be transformed by the power of God's word and the spirit of God, then I invite you to listen. Today, I'd like to lift the cover and unveil the biblical portrait of our great and glorious God. I was going to say I'd like to paint for you a portrait from scripture, but that's not really the task of the preacher. We don't make up anything ourselves. We uncover what's already there. And so rather than painting a portrait, the portrait has already been painted in God's word. My task is to uncover it, to unveil it so that we might see it. And I'm praying that the Spirit of God would position this portrait of our great and glorious God in a prominent place in your life and mine, in your heart and mine, so that all of our life is impacted by the vision of God's greatness. It is true that to a large degree, our focus determines our trajectory in life. This is true in a variety of areas. When children are learning to ride a bicycle, if their focus is right on the part of the road or path in front of them, 
you'll see that because they will be swerving like this, overcorrecting, constantly turning their wheels, trying to stray because they're just focused right here. But if they have a big view, a high view, and they're looking out on the horizon to where they're going, they will be able to straighten that, ride that bike much better. In the same way in learning to drive a car. I took several of our daughters out for driving lessons around Alum Creek, first in the parking lots at the campgrounds, a state park where there wasn't much, if any, other traffic or cars around, and then on the roads, and we would go down by the dam, and we'd follow that curve around the dam, and as they were first driving on that curve, I would see them go like this, and like this, and like this, and I said, look way around the corner. That's where you're aiming for. And if you do that, you'll be able to steer the car appropriately. Our focus in life determines to a large degree our trajectory. If we're focused on financial challenges that we face in this life, if that's all consuming to us, it will likely result in fear. We will be afraid that we won't have enough, that there will be bills to pay that we can't pay. And it results in fear. If our eyes are so fixed on our responsibilities, if it's our to-do list at home that seems a mile long, or our project list at work that has just been doubled or tripled by a supervisor, then we can feel easily weary and overburdened. If we focus on our failures, we will experience shame. If we are consumed by the opposition or rejection or abandonment that we've encountered in life, we may withdraw, we may isolate ourselves, feeling unloved and worthless. If we're engrossed with the unknown future and wondering what will happen next week or next year or next month, it can cause us paralysis. Our focus in life, to a large degree, determines our trajectory. And God intends to lift our focus, to lift our eyes, to raise our eyes and our vision and our gaze to things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Someone has joked about preaching that it's often three Ps and a poem. Well, in fact, today I do have three Ps. The first one is praise. The purpose that God outlines in our text today is praise. We see this at the very beginning of Psalm 111. Verse 1, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. We were created for the praise of God. We were created to enjoy God and to have that enjoyment overflow in praise to God. I've talked before about athletic events that many of us enjoy watching or going to athletic events. And maybe you've been to a basketball game and as they take your ticket and you enter the arena, they say, you know, you're welcome to enjoy this game as much as you want. But you're not allowed to clap, not allowed to clap or shout, stand up and jump up and down. Just enjoy. No praising. 
That's a disconnect because enjoyment always overflows into praise. We were created to enjoy God and have that enjoyment overflow into praise. The Bible reveals that our purpose is to praise our great and glorious God, to enjoy God and, and praise our great and glorious God. You know, the question about our purpose in life is one that we must all answer. Why am I here? And Vodi Bakum has said that some say the answer to that question is this. You are here to get all you can, to can all you get, and to sit on the can. That's not what the Bible says our purpose is. The Bible says our purpose is to enjoy our great and glorious God and allow that enjoyment to overflow in praise. So when you go to the basketball game and your team is driving down fast break time and one of your players throws it behind the back, no look pass, someone else takes it and jams it home for the winning basket and you're just enjoying, I can't clap, I can't shout, I can't praise, I'm just going to enjoy. No, we want our enjoyment to overflow in praise. Praise completes the enjoyment. So God has designed us and commanded us to praise. It's for our good. It's the best thing for us. So our purpose revealed in this psalm and in all of scripture is to praise, to enjoy and praise our great and glorious God. But we also see a second P in this psalm, and that's the P of perspective. What God desires for all of us is to have a God-centered vision of all things. Jonathan Edwards is considered by many to be the greatest American theologian who's ever lived. And Jonathan Edwards had what could be called a God-entranced vision of all things. He saw God in ways that most of us never do. But God used Jonathan Edwards to write and to preach and to expound from Scripture this glorious vision of God so that the rest of us could appreciate more of who God is and have our perspective enlarged. The preachers who help us the most are those who give us a greater vision of God. The ones who have been the greatest blessing in my life have done exactly that. Perspective is important. When you're learning to draw, when children first learn to draw, now some of you maybe were child prodigies and you drew artistic masterpieces from child, early childhood. But for most of us, when we're learning to draw and we set out to draw the house in which we live, it has height and width and that's it. It's flat. I remember drawing my picture of the house in which I lived, and then I saw my mom's drawing of that house. And my mom was actually very gifted in art in high school, so that was one of her best subjects. And she understood perspective, and that the things that are closer to you look larger, are portrayed in larger ways in order to give a more accurate picture. In life, we tend to see the things that are closest to us as the largest things. Those challenges that we face, they are so close to us every day, day after day, that they seem insurmountable. They just seem like huge obstacles. And maybe it's the dark cloud of grief 
that it seems so large that it's blocking a vision of God's greatness and glory. We tend to see the things in our lives, the challenges in our lives, the trials in our lives as very large, and we sometimes think that God, on the other hand, is very small and far away and insignificant and unable to help. But the reality is that's incorrect thinking. We mistakenly think that God is far away, and therefore we often tend to view God as very small and insignificant. But in Acts 17, we read these words, yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. God is closer than we may have imagined. Perhaps you've looked at the mirror, the driver, or the passenger side mirror on a vehicle, and down below, often you'll see those words, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. And maybe you've seen the painting that has a cross in the mirror. The cross of Jesus can seem so far away, seem irrelevant to the trials and the sufferings of our life today, but the cross of Jesus is very near. He is very near. Some deal with such intense pain, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain or relational pain on a daily basis that it blocks the view of the greatness and glory of God. Or when you're constantly chasing toddlers or taxiing tweens or teens that can obscure your vision of God. It can be difficult to see past those things to the greatness and glory of God. When you look at social media and you see the images that indicate that the homes and lives of other people are only beautiful, only joyful, and perfectly in order, then the brokenness and the pain and the chaos of your life and mine can seem overwhelming at times. When we focus, when our focus is on self, things can get ugly very quickly. We can spiral down. We don't have to look far to see this. Just this past week, for example, guns were drawn at a fast food restaurant because the restaurant ran out of the spicy chicken sandwiches. People are so focused on what they want and on their own lives and trials because they're hungry. When people are so consumed with themselves, they become irrational. God wants to give us a proper perspective where we see him as great as he really is. So the proper perspective we need is a God-centered vision of all things. We need God to do for us what the psalmist says that God has done for his people throughout history. Namely, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. And in this psalm, if you look carefully, I believe that you will see a crescendo, a building, a ramping up, of the great and good and wondrous works of God. So start in verse five. 
He provides food for those who fear him. Here's a basic need that we all have, food for our bodies to sustain us day by day. God does that. He provides for us, not only for us, those who are created in his image, but God provides for all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. He provides for all the creatures that he has made. That's one of God's wondrous works. We see also in that verse that he remembers his covenant forever. The covenant is one of the great Bible words, but it's often misunderstood because we tend to think in terms of contracts. When people come to be married, they often talk about a marriage contract. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. And in a covenant... It is not set aside because of the failure of one of the parties. Contracts, that's the case. If you have a contract, one party fails to fulfill a particular item of the contract, the contract can be set aside, null and void. The covenant is not like that. And here we're talking about God's covenant, that he remembers his covenant forever. We see the covenant that God made in Genesis 15 after Abraham had lamented to God, God, I don't have a child, a son. You've promised me many descendants, but now a slave in my household is my only heir. And God said, no, your own son will be your heir. And he takes him outside and says, look at the stars, Abram. If you can count them, that's how many your descendants shall be. Then God says something very strange. I want you to bring a heifer, a goat, a turtle dove, and a pigeon, and then divide them, cut them in half. The word for covenant has the idea of cutting. The Hebrew word for covenant talks about cutting. And so Abram cut these animals in half. And in the ancient Near East, the typical practice was that both parties to a covenant would pass between the halves of the sacrificial animals. And they would be taking on an implied curse. Namely, they would be saying, if I fail to fulfill this covenant, may it be to me as it is to these animals. May my life be torn asunder. May I be destroyed. But what do we see in Genesis 15? After the animals are cut in pieces in half, then when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. It doesn't say Abram made a covenant with the Lord or that they made a covenant together. The Lord made a covenant with Abram. The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch were a symbol of God's presence. It was God alone who passed between those divided animals. It was God alone who took the curse of the covenant to write the covenant in blood. That we refer to as the old covenant. But then we know of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus, our Savior, who alone went to the cross, whose body was pierced for our transgressions. God, the Lord, remembers his covenant 
That's one of his wondrous works that he wants us to remember. We come to verse 6. We see he has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands, verse 7, are faithful and just. When we tend to think of the works of God, I think we probably think of big things, grand things, vast things like the heavens, the sun and the moon and the stars, the planets. And those are appropriate things to think about because if we can get our minds somewhat around those vast realities, we can have a grasp of the eternal power and glory of God who created them, who calls them all by name, who put them there with just his little finger, as it were, and holds them there by his word of power. If we can get a grasp of those vast realities of God's works, we'll have a better understanding of the greatness of our God. But it's not just the big things, the vast realities. There are little things. Yesterday, my wife went with some of our family to one of the parks in the area for a nature program. And as they were walking out in the pasture of this park, they learned about spiders and spittlebugs. I'm sure you've had many sleepless nights thinking about spittlebugs, right? I don't know that I even had heard of a spittlebug before, but my wife came back yesterday, and she was all excited to tell me about spiders and spittlebugs. I learned something yesterday. Spiders each have their own web. It's unique to each variety of spider. And they have their own insignia that they put in that web, and it might be like their signature on their artwork, but sometimes it's more than that. They put an insignia in their web, and some of these insignias, they're a special pattern that reflect or draw the ultraviolet light which attracts the bugs that the spiders want to eat. And so the spiders over in this part of the web watching this insignia that they put over here, and here come a bunch of bugs and get stuck in that insignia. The spider descends upon them and eats them for lunch or breakfast or supper, whatever the case may be. God designed these spiders in a way that is incredible. And it's to point to the greatness of our God. And then there are spittlebugs. Maybe you've been out in the pasture in tall grass and you've seen some tall pieces of grass, blades of grass or weeds or ragweed or goldenrod, the state flower of Nebraska, and you have seen on these plants some foamy looking stuff and you've wondered, what in the world is that? And if you looked closely enough, you would see behind that foamy stuff a bug, a little larva, a baby spittlebug. They hide in the foam, and they're preserved from predators. Now you ask, what is that foam? Well, it's really bug urine. Sorry to do that before lunchtime, but these spittlebugs, they sustain themselves by drinking so much sap from the plants that they produce lots of urine, and it foams up, and it provides a covering for the baby for the larva. And you might think that poor baby, how is it going to breathe all surrounded by those bubbles? 
Well, God, our amazing creator, has given them a snorkel type of device that enables them to stick that out and breathe the air outside the foam. God's works, his wondrous works, the works of his hands, are marvelous. And that's not even taking into consideration you and me made in the very image of God. God has shown the power of his works. This was shown especially in giving the inheritance of the nations when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them out and delivered them from the Egyptian army and through the Red Sea. And then he delivered nations to them. He cast out the nations that were in the land, the pagan nations, and he gave them the land. That was a way of him showing his, the works of his hands the power of his works, that he went before the people, he defeated the enemies because he loved his people and wanted to provide for them. And now we get to more of the crescendo because we go from natural revelation in the things that God has made to special revelation in God's word. We see in verse 7 that all his precepts are trustworthy. Psalm 19, you may remember, begins with the heavens declare the work, the glory of God, and, the, and all of creation is declaring God's greatness and glory. But then it goes on to talk about God's word. We need more than just the revelation that's given to us in creation. We need God's special revelation in scripture. And God has graciously given us that in his precepts, his teachings, his instructions, which are for our good. The precepts of the Lord are trustworthy. They will never fail you. When God forbids something, he's protecting you from harm. When he gives a gift, he's giving you that because he loves you. He is trustworthy. His precepts are trustworthy. You can trust in the Lord. We go on up in this crescendo, and we see in verse 9, that he sent redemption to his people. God sent redemption to his people. When they were slaves in Egypt, he redeemed them by his mighty hand from slavery and brought them into their own land. He redeemed and delivered them from the giant Goliath. And then in Christ, he redeemed and delivered us from the giant of sin. There is this crescendo, this ascent on the peak of God's glory. In this psalm, we've been stepping up these stairs, and it's like climbing a mountain stage or a mountain pass or a a steep hill on a bicycle ride. In the Tour de France, those are some of my favorite parts, are to watch these cyclists labor up the steep mountain passes in the Alps and the Pyrenees. And unlike them, when I ride, I don't ride those kind of hills. But recently, I was riding my bike on the trail. It's the Cocosing Gap Trail between Mount Vernon and Howard, Ohio, and a bit north and east of here. And after I got to the village of Howard, I ventured off the path. And there was a steep hill going up into the village from this rails to trails 
path up to the village of Howard. And then there was a downhill, and I'm thinking, I'm going to work my way back over to Gambier, where Kenyon College is. And so I rode down a couple of roads, and never been on these roads before, didn't know where I was headed for sure, and um, came to a road called Kilduff. And I felt like I was going to die. Because off of Kilduff Road, it took a sharp right up New Gambier Road. And you get partway up this hill, and there's a false flat. You think, ah, I've arrived at the summit. No, not hardly. You look again, there's more. And I'm huffing and puffing and thinking, I'm going to have to get off and walk my bike up this hill. I'm going to be so embarrassed. I hope no one sees us. Thankfully, God gave me grace to get up the hill. And then at the top of the hill, there's this old chapel, this church building. Wow, God, you are so good. God has built into this psalm a crescendo, an ascent to this mountain pass, and we see it in verse 9. After God sent redemption to his people, then the psalmist says, holy and awesome is his name. That's the peak of God's glory, his holiness. And when we think of the word holy, we tend to think of purity, Freedom from sin, and certainly that is true of God. But that's not primarily what the Bible means when it uses the word holy. When the Bible talks about God being holy, it's saying that God is absolutely rare, that God is unique in all the universe. There is no one like our God. Exodus 8.10 says there is no one like our God. God is the only self-existent being. Children often ask, well, who made God? No one did. God has always been. He will always be. That is his name. I am who I am. That's the name that God revealed to Moses. Yahweh, it means I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. God is eternal. He's the only self-existent being. And yet the God who did not become, who has always been, became human flesh in the Son. In Jesus Christ, he took on human flesh. God is holy, and he is awesome. Now, I've spoken before about the cheapening of the word awesome. That word is tossed around all the time, and if you use it in various ways, I'm not here to condemn you. I just want to point out that the Bible reserves that word for God and his works. So when everything is awesome, nothing is awesome. The Bible reserves the word awesome for God and his works. And like I said, I'm not not out to be the language police. If you say the word awesome about something other than God or his works, I'm not going to correct you. You don't have to feel guilty or ashamed before me. But... Here's some of the ways that we use the word awesome. A number of years ago, there were some vehicles that had these wheels, chrome wheels, that uh, had a, a separate part in the middle that would spin separately, independently from the wheel itself that was connected to the tire. And so when these vehicles would pull up at a traffic light or a stop sign, they would stop, the wheels would stop, but the inside of the wheel would still be spinning. And you'd look over and think, wow, awesome, dude, those are awesome wheels. Or then you might go to the county fair, which begins in a week up in Delaware, and you have these different booths and different vendors, and one of them does fingernails. And they do all these intricate patterns on your fingernails for you, if you want. And you might look at your fingernails and say, wow, those are awesome. 
Or maybe you like a certain type of pizza with a particular crust or particular toppings, and you open the box, and there it is, and you just say, awesome. This pizza is awesome. That one-handed catch in the football game yesterday where the receiver came down with one toe inbounds, made the touchdown, that was not awesome. It might have been exciting. It might have been surprising. It might have required remarkable talent, but it was not awesome. When you are in the presence of awesome, the only proper response is to fall down on your face. Now, I don't need to tell you that if you're falling down on your face and worshiping a football player or a whole team of football players, you have a bigger problem. You have fallen for an idol, and the worship of any idol is deadly. So again, I'm not out to be legalistic about this and be the language policeman if you use the word awesome in different ways. But my point is to say that God is unique in the universe. There is no one like the Lord our God. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Our God alone is awesome. In Psalm 113, it says, The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? That's a rhetorical question, and the expected answer is no one. No one is like the Lord our God. Yesterday, I was looking at something online and got this notification that this app applies every promo code on the internet to your cart, and it's awesome. Just what I need, an awesome app on my phone. And then I got a a notice from another company, welcome to fill in the blank, your life is about to get significantly more awesome. With our service, you can have your favorite things delivered to your door within minutes, or you can bid farewell to the fees and pick up your order yourself for maximum convenience. God alone is awesome. Our sufferings are temporary. God is eternal. God is holy and awesome. God is eternal. Our sufferings and trials that seem so large to us are temporary. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And again in Romans 8 The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Our sufferings are temporary. God alone is eternal. So how do we keep this perspective, this vision of God's greatness and glory before us? The fear of the Lord is the power that enables us to do that. 
we begin, as the psalm begins, praise the Lord. When we praise the Lord for what we know of God, when we recount and we rehearse and we retell all that he is and all that he's done, we are lifting our eyes from the trials and sufferings and challenges of this life to he who is eternal. So we praise God for what we know of him, and we ask God to cause us to remember his wondrous works. Ask God to remind us. We can pray IOUs, and I'm not talking about a debt that you might owe to someone, but specific prayers that are biblical prayers. Psalm 119, 36 says, incline my heart to your testimonies. Lord, cause me to be drawn to your testimonies so I see that picture, that vision, larger than life. Psalm 119.18, open my eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. That's I and O. Incline my heart, open my eyes. You, unite my heart to fear your name. God, cause me to fear you, to be in awe of you. And then satisfy us. Psalm 90, 14, with your steadfast, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in you. God wants us to fear the Lord and he has given us a picture in scripture and I close with this. Jesus was out on the sea with his disciples in a boat and you know that he was sleeping in the boat and the disciples came to him and said, don't you care, we're going to perish. There's a storm that had come up and Jesus was asleep and he got up and he said, peace, be still. And the, the winds and the sea were calm. And do you know how they responded? They weren't high-fiving one another and saying, awesome, dude. Touchdown, yes, Jesus. No, they said, who then is this? They were terrified. They were afraid. When you have that kind of fear of God is, this God is awesome. There is no one like him. Then all the trials, all the challenges of this life take their proper perspective. They pale in comparison to this holy and awesome God. And so in a moment, we're going to sing a song, How Great Thou Art. When I think, that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, how great thou art, how great thou art. Would you pray with me? Lord, from spiders and spittlebugs to Stars and suns and moons, you are great. You are great in your precepts. You are great in redeeming your people. You are great in holiness. And you are awesome in majesty and splendor. And we bow before you. There is no one like you. We say, Lord, who then is this that commands the waves and the wind? There is no one like you, Lord. Cause that vision to grip our hearts, to be, to take root in our souls, that it would enable us to see past all the obstacles that would obscure the vision of your greatness and glory, that we might rest in who you are for us in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.